episode 67, Nika Kabiri, co-author of the book, Money Off the Table, Decision Science and the Secret to Smarter Investing. Yeah. I mean, how dare you call me an attorney? I mean, how dare? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com for show notes, links, and a chance to enter to win a signed copy of Nika's book. Go to markraven.com slash mistake67. Please follow, rate, and review. And now on with the show. Our guest today is Nika Kabiri. She is, among other things, an attorney. She has a PhD in sociology. So she's founder of her firm, Kabiri Consulting. She's uh, on the faculty at the University of Washington uh, Department of Communication. And she describes herself as a forward-thinking, science-loving entrepreneur, an author, public speaker, teacher, and researcher. She has over 20 years of experience um, studying how people make decisions in a variety of contexts from business to politics to relationships. Uh, So Nika, thank you for being a guest today. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. With all of that in your uh, bio and on your plate, thank you for, I'm glad you could take time to record a podcast here. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, But I do have to say, I feel a little insulted that you called me an attorney. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not, I'm just tell, kidding. Tell me more. Just so kidding. Tell me, was that, was that, a, was that a career <laughs> no, mistake? I, or? you know, I never, I never took the bar. I well, never took the bar. And so well, I, I can't officially say that I'm an, an attorney or I've ever been an attorney. I just graduated from law school and it's just, I'm just, it's just a joke. I mean, it's not it, that. It's a, a, a mistake on my part because I see the letters JD after your name. So my mistake was, okay. So you have the degree, but you, okay. I stand corrected. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, how dare you call me an attorney? I mean, how dare. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I have a lot of attorney. I have a lot of lawyer friends. I work with lawyers a lot, but yeah. I didn't mean it as an insult. That wouldn't be a nice way to start. I know. But um, Nika's got a new book. Uh, it's titled uh, Money Off the Table. Uh, it's a guide to help you save for retirement in a way that minimizes risk and protects your money um, all through the lens of decision science. So mm-hmm. I think we have a, a really interesting opportunity to hear your perspectives. You know, we, we, And on this um, show, guests talk about decisions they've made. That's usually the basis for what we then describe as a favorite mistake. But the the one part of Nika's bio, um, I'm going to read here too. It says, she helps people get real, move forward and minimize regret. So does that minimize regret part mean help people avoid making mistakes? Or how how do you even frame mistakes from from your education and teaching and experience? Right. And that's a great, great question. Um, Because yeah, what does regret mean anyway? And it's it's really hard. I think the perspective that I come from is that it's really hard to judge um, whether or not a mistake is a good one by the outcome, because it would assume that you have that much control over what happens in the world, that you can you know you can have all your ducks in a row, 
make um, all the right choices, it's still possible that things don't quite turn out for you. Um, and if you know, if there's ever been a better example, it's business owners who before COVID had everything figured out, they were making great choices, they were on their way. And then, you know, things just for a lot of people didn't quite work out. And it doesn't mean they made the bat, a, the, a wrong decision. And it certainly doesn't mean they should feel regret. Um, so I like to measure the success of a decision by how well that sh- the process follows really objective um, steps rather than being swayed by biases or mental shortcuts or you know going with your gut. I think if you go with your gut, generally speaking, I think that's probably not a, a good way to go. So um, we regret a lot of things that are out of our control. I, I can't help clients with that, but I can help them um, minimize the regret that can come from choices that they could have made better, but they didn't. Such as my regret for calling you an attorney and not doing a better <laughs> job of researching yeah. or checking. That's I, that's that's fine. You know, that's a very human um, thing to do because, you know, we often, we often assume that what we know is all there is to know. And it's a very common, I mean, we do this every day. So, yeah. Well, I saw the letters JD and I jumped to a conclusion is, is, is uh, I know you've written and shared about cognitive bias. Is that a fancy way of me for, for me to say I screwed up? Yeah, it's, 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 you took a shortcut. You just took a shortcut rather than <laughs> um, exploring um, or questioning you, you just assume that. And um, I mean, it could be worse. You could have assumed a lot of other things about me, which you did. It's not, <laughs> it's not the worst thing in the world to do. Um, but it's not uncommon. People call me, I mean, people, th- here's where I worry about it. I cannot give legal advice. Don't ask me for legal advice. That's sure. the only, that's the only reason it matters. <laughs> All right. But for yeah. decision advice though, um, there's a lot you can do, but so yeah. I'm, I'm, when, when you talked about decision-making process, evaluating that versus evaluating Results. Um, I, I think of sports, and um, there's there's one sports show um, that I listen to. Uh, used to be on ESPN. It's the Dan Levitard show, and one thing they actually talk about a lot is so much of kind of inane sports talk is judging result was good, therefore it was a good decision. Yes. Result was bad. Oh, it was a bad decision. They're not evaluating the coaching process. They're 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 judging off of the results. So. I know you're in Washington. Are you a Seattle Seahawks fan? Is this uh, delicate really, territory? It, delicate you know, territory. I, I have to say, I'm not a huge football fan. Okay. Um, but I no, I'm not a huge Seahawks fan. Sorry, Seattle peeps. I um, it's very <laughs> coming from. I grew up in Houston, you know. And when I was a kid, the Oilers were everything. Um, it's really hard for me to. Yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> okay. Well, so then this won't be as sensitive to you, but you, you may have heard from neighbors or friends or colleagues um, a couple of Super Bowls ago, controversial decision at the end of the game to uh, throw a pass from like the one or two yard line. That pass was intercepted. Therefore, everybody said, Pete Carroll, you're an idiot. Where if that pass had caught the Patriots defense by surprise for a touchdown, that same decision would have been lauded as brilliance. So there's that trap, right? Right, right. Um, Yeah, Pete Carroll can't predict the future. He can't predict what other players on the other team are going to do at any given moment. But again, it's it's a really, it's a human, hindsight is, when they say hindsight's 20-20, they really 
believe that. I mean, I mean, it's really, there's, it's really true um, because the brain kind of tricks us into thinking that what we know now is something we used to, we've always known um, and, or that was knowable even like some things just aren't knowable. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons I try to tell my clients is that, you know, some things you just did not know at the time, some things you cannot possibly ever know. Um, you can't be held responsible for that. I guess then as a decision scientist, um, you haven't made any bad decisions and this will be a really short episode. Thank you for joining <laughs> us today. Or do you, do you have still, you know, do you still have a favorite mistake story that you can tell I us? Do. I do. I want to say that like maybe 50% of my expertise in decision science comes from the scholarship and 50% comes from my own mess ups. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like my experience. Yeah, I can share a bad, um, a, a favorite mistake. Um, so it, this, you know, this happened when I was working um, in, in a company um, where we were kind of in a point of transition. Like there's a point, there's a, we were going through some management transitions and um, we had just done an employee satisfaction survey and the results were very mixed. Like some people were okay. Some people were not okay. We had a huge meeting to sort of troubleshoot. And you know how this goes, like everybody has to talk. We have to get in a room and just talk about our feelings and, you know, it's an anonymous survey, but we still need to share. And it just kind of a really weird situation. Um, and it was my turn to speak up and I am usually one in the workplace to be very, um, I, I practice restraint. I mean, I don't really tend to vocalize my dissatisfaction unless it's crit critical to the functioning of the business. So um, if I think the business is going to suffer for it, I'll say something. If I'm suffering for it, I'll suffer in silence. In that case, um, it was a bit of both. My manager specifically said, hey, you know, this is the time, it's a safe space. We are all, you know, being open and vulnerable. So Nika, please tell me what you feel um, could be done, what I could do better. And so I was very honest. I said, you don't respond to emails. I said, I email. And I said this in front of everyone yes. in the room. I said, I, you're my manager and I need your feedback, approval, sign off in order to do certain things. I can't just run on that on, you know, run on my own. And um, when I reach out to you, you don't respond. And so I'm stuck and I just need, you know, a quick response. Um, and her response to me was, first of all, it extended beyond just the meeting. There were, there were, there was, I got feedback for weeks after that, but it was, you know, you don't understand Nika, how busy um, a C-level person is. You don't recognize how many emails we get every day. I can't respond to all of them. And so the reaction was um, like, as though I was complaining about something minor, I was making a big deal out of nothing. And I, and that I didn't understand. I was too naive to understand the situation. No big deal, except for um, that manager then made things very difficult for me in a lot of other ways as a result of that. Like, I wow. think the feeling that I got was that I had, I had, she felt that I'd made her look bad because her, you know, there were, the HR was in the room too. She, she probably felt that I'd made her look bad. And then somehow needed to let me know that on a regular basis. Um, didn't really respond to my emails, um, chewed me out for being a difficult person to manage because I couldn't just manage myself. I needed to learn to manage myself. Um, 
And, you know, some of the questions that I was asking her for her approval, I should just be able to answer them myself. It was questions like, what's my role here? Like Mm -hmm. there's a management transition. (laughs) I don't know what my role is. And she was upset that I couldn't just figure it out on my own. Like she's never worked. She said at one point, I've never managed someone so difficult. Um, And um, yeah, it just, it just taught me, it's my favorite mistake because it really, really taught me um, what trust really means in the workplace what safe spaces really mean are they really safe and she said uh, quite literally this is a safe space like those words yes. came out of yes. her mouth and then i mean the the feedback you gave at least in your your retelling of the story sounds relatively mild then then this pattern of defensiveness criticism throwing it back on you retaliation like that that hadn't been a pattern that started in response to you saying it sucks when you don't reply to our yes, emails. That's from my recollection. And again, you know, my memory is also biased. Um, it's my side of the story. I recognize that. Um, but I still, my learning is still what it is, which is safe spaces aren't safe because somebody calls them. So um, vulnerability isn't something that you should feel comfortable volunteering. It's something that has to be earned. Um, I think there's a lot of talk in the workplace about authenticity and vulnerability and bringing your real self to the workplace. And I think that the expectation is that you bring your entire real self, all of you completely vulnerable. And I've, I've spoken with people who've worked in environments where their employers actually expect that. Um, But I think I really learned that day that that's just not realistic and it's not fair. So I'm curious what decision-making frameworks would be helpful. You were in a situation where I guess there's a decision of, do I speak up or do I just say, no, I'm fine. Um, Is it more dangerous? Like, was there an assumption? And I'm not faulting you for the assumption that she was saying it's a safe space. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it was, so you may be on some level, you regretted speaking up. So back to your bio, you talk about minimizing regret. Is minimizing regret kind of, you know, if that was your primary function, I guess we would err on the side of not speaking up. Right. Or there's a risk we would regret not doing that. So I guess there's a lot of questions here. How do you think through this? Is minimizing regret the main goal? Or sometimes do we need to think about maximizing the positive outcome? I think it's both. I think we're weighing both. And that's what risk analysis, which is a huge part of decision-making and decision science, that's where that comes into play because you're really trying to forecast the probability that any number of different outcomes could actually happen if you were to make a particular choice. And I want to believe, I'm sure this wasn't really what was going on, but I want to believe that in that moment, I had the, the wherewithal to kind of objectively analyze the risk somehow. Like I, I, you know, sitting in that room in that meeting that perhaps I could have um, asked myself, okay, what is the possibility? What is the likelihood that if I actually trust that this is a safe space and that I actually take that chance um, that it's going to turn out okay for me? What's the risk there? And I think that's where a lot of us kind of go with our gut, which I did at that moment. Like I took a chance. I know I was taking a risk. I felt like, oh my gosh, Nika, you're jumping off a cliff right now. You're just hope something will catch you. But we don't really slow down for a second and even for a second and really analyze that risk. 
and also weigh the risk of or the the trade-off of not speaking up. Like what would have what would have harmed me? How would have harmed me if I didn't say anything in that room? What if I had chosen a different option, like maybe spoken to her about it in private? Um, I didn't slow down to think through that well enough. And so my regret was that that I didn't evaluate the risk very well. Um, yeah. But you, you were being put on the spot. Would it have been bad for you in some way if you had kind of sat back and said like, no, uh, I'm good. Things are fine. No feedback, no comment, yeah. nothing. To say. I mean, you might have said it exactly that way, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I used to work with a guy um, who was a very junior person and I managed him um, at a research firm. And I have to say, I learned a lot from this guy because anytime anybody asked his opinion, he would say, I'm not quite sure. I, I think there's a lot there. I need to think of, I think I need to think about this. And he didn't lose respect for saying that. In fact, he got a lot of respect because people thought of him as being very thoughtful. And, um, and for someone so young, I just felt so, so lucky to learn, you know, like from somebody not experienced who hadn't been indoctrinated into this like world of business where we have to know the answer and we have to know it now. He just spoke his mind. He was like, you know, I don't know what I think. There's nothing wrong with that. I think there should be more space and more permission to in business say things like that. And perhaps in that room, that could have been my option to say, you know what? Things aren't great. Things aren't bad. I just need to think on this. You know, let me, let me think on this and maybe I can, we can meet in private and I don't see anything wrong with that in most situations. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, is that a helpful strategy to delay the decision in a way? It is a healthy, I think it is when the decision needs to be delayed. I, I have done that now. I've implemented that approach um, when I work with clients and they ask me something and I don't know the answer um, or I feel like I'm treading on some tricky territory where I could put my foot in my mouth. Um, if I have that feeling like I did that day where there's a, there is kind of an, a weird response to, oh, this is risky, right? Like we do have some innate kind of reactions to certain situations and um, but to not act on them is the trick and to just, you know, not always available. Sometimes you're in an emergency situation and you have to choose, but I think more times than not, you don't have to, you can, you can give it a moment, sleep on it. And it seems like big decisions, like, should I take that job or not? Or should I put an offer in on that house? It's different. Uh, I mean, you know, back to your point, or you use the phrase forecasting the probability of outcomes. Mm -hmm. Can't predict the future. Um, so like what, what, you know, if you, if you make a decision to buy a house and the economy goes really downhill because of a, uh, gosh, a pandemic that we didn't know, <laughs> you know, some yeah. people would say, yeah, we knew this was coming. It was just a matter of when, but, um, you can't be blamed for what you don't know. And, and I wonder how often people beat themselves up right over well i should have known when maybe that's that's unfair all the time i and i see people do this with their relationships like with romantic relationships oh i saw the signs i saw the red flags i just chose to ignore them my first reaction is but did you though did you really see them because in six month period how can you know everything there is to know about somebody to, to know whether they're right for you. Like some people keep learning about each other after 20 years and learning about themselves. Information is limited. And yeah, I, I, I kind of, I kind of doubt that, um, that we all know everything we, we should have known or we think we should have known. Yeah. So it seems like there are, there are knowledge 
issues when it comes to making decisions. What, what do we know? What can we know? What's mm-hmm. unknowable? And then there are questions around um, you know, cognitive biases or how we get what information we get. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious if we can explore a little bit moving away from your, your career situation, talking about some you know, societal issues where things are very polarized. People often get news and information from um, a, a, a polarized news source or website. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts around somebody deciding what information is trustworthy and how that leads into our decision making about who to vote for or let's say on a daily basis, should somebody wear a mask? Should somebody get vaccinated? And to be clear, I'm, I'm an advocate for wearing masks when you're around other people and I've gotten vaccinated and I hope other people do. But um what I mean, you know, how, how do we make decisions or what are your thoughts on decision making when different people are getting different information? Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a it's it's a gosh, how do I say this without sounding too dramatic, although it's very, very dramatic. It's the fact that there is so much misinformation out there is not just a big problem. It's like an epic problem. It's a monumentally epic problem. Um it's okay. It's not a big deal if you have bad information about certain things, but when those things impact your decisions, when they factor into your cost benefit analysis, or when they f- cause you to just circumvent the cost benefit analysis altogether, because you want to, you know, go along with the bandwagon or you have a gut feeling or, you know, something that you want to do or what have you, um, then misinformation can be very, very dangerous if those decisions have public health implications. So, um, and yeah, I, I think that I just, I don't know why we aren't more heavy handed with our, um, oh, I see, I feel like I'm walking on. Who, who, who's the, who's the we in that? We as society, like we, I think we permit um, certain platforms, certain, um, and free speech, you know, you can't free speech. This is where my law background comes in. Like free speech is a thing, but I think we don't have the, we don't seem to teach our kids the, how to discern or how to vet information properly. And we, I don't think in school learned how to do that. I think they're very important skills. We don't know, like all of us don't know. Some of us obviously know better than others, um, where we can actually tell what's the likelihood that this source of information is accurate versus not. Um, we just don't, we don't have that. And so, yeah. so the government, I mean, you know, I'm speaking as uh, an engineer and not an attorney, but my understanding of the first amendment is, you know, that, that restricts what the government uh, can or cannot do in terms of restricting speech. A lot of societal pressure is basically the free market. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, private businesses can restrict what is said or not said, or society could shame. I mean, uh, is shaming, is is that even a helpful strategy as we kind of wade into that shaming people for sharing certain information? I'm going to tell a a quick story where I've been continually disappointed by one person I had known in professional circles. 
uh, not going to name his name, of course, but in some LinkedIn discussion, he waded in. And on one hand, he threw out this blanket criticism that Americans don't have good critical thinking skills. And then two comments later, he was spreading complete trash misinformation about how masks don't work and the virus is too small to be blocked by masks. I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. This is easily discounted. <sighs> it's just, it's frustrating. So, I mean, I can call him out and I could choose to not do business with this person. That's the free market. But right. does that help? Like it, it people double down on they their do. misinformation based misunderstandings of things. Right. They do. And I think people on all sides or both sides, if you if you listen, if you listen to them sometimes, I had a conversation the other day with someone who is um, very much a um, on the other side of the political spectrum as myself. Very different points of view, very different ideas of what reality is and what truth is and what really has happened. Um, just facts just don't line up with my understanding of facts. But when you hear him talk about critical thinking or questioning the press or being really skeptical and how it's our duty to really see through the BS, you could, I mean, it's, he sounded like I would sound like, like we are all from whatever side of the spectrum we're yeah. on. Like we believe in that basic premise. Like, don't just believe what's been, you know, BS that's been fed to you. You know, you have to be discerning. You have to be careful. Um, and yet they end up in these other places, uh, believing completely different things. And I think it really just comes down to, and I don't know if I'm answering your question or just going back to a previous question you asked, that there's this understanding of the laws of probability. There's, um, and that's what critical thinking is to me largely about, thinking about conditionality and probability, like rather than black and white thinking and just believing like this guy I was talking to, believing in his core that, um, that um, Derek Chauvin is not going to be found guilty because he's absolutely innocent, believing to his core, thinking, well, under what conditions would a police officer in that situation, should they be found guilty or innocent? And what's the probability that any of those conditions are going to happen? That line of thinking gets you closer to, I think, the truth. You're never going to get the truth, but you can get a lot closer to it. Um, and those skills, are, I think, are, are what's sometimes missing and kind of lead some of us astray. And, and I think, you know, people get led astray by conspiracy theories. I, I saw something you, you wrote recently, kind of asking this question about what what can we do about that? You, you said something, um, I think this is a direct quote I pulled from that. Um, All people resist new evidence that challenges their beliefs to varying degrees. And it reminded me of a, a Mark Twain quote. It's probably may have been actually said by him. Um, it's easier to fool someone than it is to convince them they've been fooled. And that uh -huh. comes to mind a lot. So there, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the thinking patterns though, that lead to that instead of just saying shame on you for being fooled and shame on you for doubling down, there is some fairly predictable behavior there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting just um, how efficient the human brain is. I think a lot of our problems come down to the efficiency of the human brain and why that's relevant to your question is um, is that we often need to have we need we feel the need to make decisions right away when our brains are just wired to make decisions very quickly. You know, and as in childhood, 
during childhood development, our brain synapses form, they form certain patterns and pathways and all of that. I'm not a neuroscientist. This is a very layperson description of it, but those, those are shortcuts that are, that are kind of developing. And, um, as we, one of those very, very important shortcuts to ensure efficiency and quick decision-making is the, um, it manifests in the sense that we know everything there is to know and that whatever we possess in our, in our knowledge base, in our heads, the memory we have, the experiences we have and what we've heard that we already possess is plenty, is plenty to do whatever we need to do. And so when we've already have all this information, when we have friends that are in QAnon and we go to the websites and we hear this information or fascinated with it, and we don't already have a lot of information, we don't already know a lot about politics, we don't know how the world works and we're being told how the quote unquote world works, we are creating these information databases in our head that is everything that we think there is to know. And when somebody comes along and says something completely different, it can't be right. It can't, they cannot, it cannot be right that what you're, you're saying, because I already know everything. I already know what there is to know. And if you're telling me something contradictory, you're being um, either disingenuous or you don't know the facts or you're part of the deep state or whatever it is. Um, But yeah, confirmation bias is a real thing. It's a really dangerous thing. And that's why I really, um, I really like to encourage people to do the opposite of what we hear a lot in, 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 in as far as advice goes in business. Like, yeah, don't be confident. <laughs> Doubt yourself. Assume you're wrong. Don't be decisive. Um, those are things that can lead you down the wrong path. And it seems like, you know, back to business for a minute, um, businesses crave certainty. Yes. Um, in terms of predicting results, what, what, what are your sales going to be this quarter? When is that product going to be released? Craving certainty then leads to, you know, all kinds of reactions like sandbagging and, and other things that are maybe harmful um, to the business. And, and organizations probably generally reward confidence in terms of deciding who to promote. And then that seems likely to spiral out of control a little bit uh, as, as people who would, you know, what's the expression of sometimes, you know, um, usually right, sometimes wrong, never in doubt. Right. There's it's some expression, something like that. It's unfortunate that that's, that's the norm. And it's, it's not that way in other cultures. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. In cultures like Japan, there's a lot of uncertainty in decision-making. They reckon it, it's a, it's a cultural kind of, um, a, a norm to take time making decisions where decisiveness isn't really rewarded and where, you know, here in the United States, the boss is, you know, the person who makes the choice and what he says goes, but he can pivot anytime time he wants because that's, that's his out or her out. Um, but in other cultures, there's more consensus forming their uh, decisions. There's, there's less um, rush to make decisions. So it's not necessary to, to have, to run a good business and be profitable and have these traits. I think it's more of a cultural, culturally normative expectation that's not really correlated with success or performance. And, and some of that culture, I think, is organizational, where in some organizations, um, 
If you if, if you were asked a question and, and you were to say, I don't know, that would be a huge strike against you, where I, I appreciate the style of leadership that would not BS anyone and say, you know, I, I don't know, let's figure it out, or I don't know, let's go look into that. Yes. I mean, I had a manager who told me exactly that, that I lacked confidence because I didn't have prescriptive, direct decisive recommendations that, you know, as a researcher, you talk in probability, you talk in perhaps this, it's more likely to do that. I'm giving you the straight up answer. There's no black and white. The world is non black and white. And yeah, that was interpreted in that way in my case as well, which kind of hurt my career Hmm. a little bit for a moment, not too long though. Yeah. Well, and I I would say that was perhaps their mistake. Yeah, I think so. Organizations that do that. So um, so, so back, back um, a quick follow-up though, um, let's say, you know, the, the, the colleague or the family member who's gotten deep down some conspiracy rabbit hole, is there anything we can do about it that's constructive saying you're wrong, you're an idiot, isn't likely to be work. helpful here. You should read this. They might not even read it. Like what, what can, what can or should you do? Yes. Because back to the whole, um, the point I was making about the efficient brain, everything you know is all there is to know. You cannot convince people with facts because they already have all the facts. They already know everything there is to know. And some of the facts they know are that anybody who contradicts their facts is part of the problem. So it's kind of rigged against you. Uh, I've, I've seen or heard of people pulling away as a, as a response. I just want to address that. Um, I think that that has a tendency of creating the kind of polarization that would exacerbate the problem. And I, I really, it's very, 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 very hard to maintain a close relationship to someone when you aren't a QAnon supporter and they are, it's, it's very challenging and difficult, but when you do, when you do pull away and you allow for a rift to happen, you're really cutting them off from information experiences that that do contradict what they already believe. And sure, they might not have their minds changed if you parade facts in front of them, but um, the future is kind of unpredictable. Um, The conspiracy theory itself could fall apart. And in that moment, if you're not there to kind of be a support when their whole world crumbles, you know, you're missing out on an opportunity to change their minds and to influence the way they think. And sometimes your personal experiences or stories could be much more powerful to share with them than facts. Because one thing that people really do respond to and remember and use to drive their decision-making are elaborate, memorable, interesting stories, which is why conspiracy theories are so attractive. Because if they're anything, they're interesting stories. So, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's where people should start. Just don't break up with your friends. Just hang in there and see what happens. Well, that's, that's food for thought because there are, um, in some cases, uh, friends or, you know, people from professional circles that I've felt like crossed a line of being, you know, just crossing a line where I don't want that in my life, I don't want to be exposed to that, but you're, you're making me think of like disconnecting or blocking somebody 
could end up being counterproductive as a far as as opposed to using tools where let's say you mute somebody you don't see what stuff they might be spewing in you whatever social media feed it is but you're not completely separated from them yeah or or um maybe adjust uh, this is again this is really hard to do i find it hard to do but maybe adjust your perspective in that you are you are, you know, don't mute them, but just absorb what they're telling you is information about them. Um, it's not savory information and it may not be comfortable information, but information and knowledge is power. And if you, if you know who this person is, then you're in a better position to influence their decisions or to influence their perspective than if you really have no idea. Yeah. If, if, or when they're open to it, I guess. Yeah. And the same may be true. And this is where I think there is, um, in a way, useful language um, in the medical field. And I think a lot of this then goes into the media where uh, people are being described as vaccine hesitant, Mm -hmm. I think is more constructive language than vaccine resistant or vaccine denier. Because when there's hesitancy, like not not everybody can be vaccinated first. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that are maybe just holding back. And then as, as we see more and more evidence that this is on the whole um, safe and it's safer than not doing it, people may come around. So I guess we have to be careful about not alienating them in the meantime. Totally. totally. I actually wrote an opinion piece um, that was published in the Hill on exactly this, that hesitancy is not rejection. It's not apathy. It's, and if you look at the data from late last year to Today, the proportion of people who are um, saying, yes, I'm going to get vaccinated has increased. So there's a trend in the positive direction, which means hesitancy is not, it's, it's not a static situation. It's dynamic. It can change. People can change their minds. Um, if you reject them, you don't, you don't have that opportunity to change their minds. Well, really good food for thought. I will link to that article and uh, a couple of others in the show notes. Um, Nika Kabiri uh, has been um, our guest. Her book uh, is called uh, Money Off the Table. I'm sorry we didn't really get into uh, the, the, the book at all, but I hope people will go and check that out. Um, you can find her online at nikakabiri.com, yournextdecision.com. Yes. No, no mistakes on those websites, no. right? No. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, she, she so you'll you'll wear the the label of sociologist. Yes, I will proudly wear that label. I should have introduced you as a sociologist. I, I didn't mean to tease you so hard. Not I mean, a mater- <laughs> but No, I mean it was my it was my mistake, and it's fair game. And I, I generally I don't edit out my mistakes. Uh, so so it goes. Um, was a final question. I'm going to just throw it through it. You was going to law school a mistake or did you just make a different decision later? I think about that all the time. I'm not even sure it was my decision. Honestly, I think it was my parents' decision at the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. and finishing. I wanted to drop out after the first semester and finishing Mm -hmm. was their decision. So sometimes that's how it goes too. All right. Gosh. All right. Um, So uh, I don't think I stepped in it as badly there at the end as I No. (laughs) <laughs> I did at the beginning. Um, well, Nika, thank you for being a guest today and you know sharing your thoughts on decision making. I, I feel like we just scratched the surface of your experience and your expertise. But thank you for sharing that with you. You do a lot of writing. I mean, you like I said, you're you're super busy. So thank you 
for taking time to be a guest here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks. Again, thanks, Nika. And I think you'll really want to check out her book and you can go enter to win a signed copy by going to markgraven.com slash mistake 67. If you like the episode, please share it on social media, especially LinkedIn, send it to a colleague or a friend that would really help. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.